Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A King on a Colt, Zachariah's Peace Poetry. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 6, 2008. As we celebrate the birth of America this 4th of July, in the progress of our nation's political experiment, which at a mere 232 years old is by world historical standards astonishingly young, the lectionary for this week includes some explicitly political poetry from the prophet Zechariah. It speaks to us today 2,500 years after he wrote. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Babylon conquered Israel and deported them in 586 BC. But before too long, the military balance of power shifted, and Cyrus of Persia conquered Babylon. As a tolerant and enlightened ruler, Cyrus issued an edict in 538 BC that permitted the subjugated Jews to return to their devastated homeland. Repatriation to Israel was a brave choice, and not all the Jews returned. Economically speaking, they were better off in pagan Babylon than in holy Jerusalem, for their capital had been ransacked and was in shambles. When Israel's present reality was bleak, the prophets often envisioned a better future. What is human hope, after all, if not the confidence and expectation of a future? And that's what Zechariah did for the repatriated Jews living in a war-torn Jerusalem. Listen to his poetry from Zechariah chapter 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. When you read this political poetry closely, and imagine yourself back in the time and place of a repatriated Jew trying to eke out a subsistence living in your subjugated country, Zechariah's poetry subverts your normal expectations. It's not what most Jews would have wanted to hear. Consider the disconnects. Yes, a king will rescue them. But why these words about righteousness and salvation instead of revenge and retribution? Don't warring nations even demand retribution and expect retribution? And what about a king riding on a colt. Such outlandish political parody might have struck Zechariah's original readers as even cruel. 
Thank God for the promises of peace that all the enemy's military hardware will be removed from the capital streets, chariots, war horses, and battle bows. But peace to the enemy? Peace to all nations from sea to sea? Peace to the ends of the earth? Why such universal blessing when national survival was at stake? The hope that Zechariah offered the Jews envisioned a future far different than the one they might have understandably sought, given their humiliating circumstances, and certainly compared to the canons of conventional political wisdom. The future that his political poetry envisioned is characterized by national humility, not hubris. It imagines a king who rides a young donkey, that rather than a regal stallion, as emblematic and not oxymoronic. The future kingdom is peaceable, not provocational. It's also universal, extending to the ends of the earth, rather than ethnocentric, nationalistic, or narcissistic. In Zechariah's political calculus, the concerns of Yahweh's kingdom eclipsed and extended far beyond the boundaries of what we normally think of when we think of a geopolitical state or kingdom. Claiming that God loves your own country more than he loves other countries, confusing and conflating God's loves with national values, in invoking God's wrath against your enemies, all these are standard operating procedures for many governments, in Zechariah's day and in our own day. Claims of divine favoritism fuel the Muslim extremism that we see in so many Arab states today, where the notion of a secular state is anathema. Allah loves us, he hates the degenerate American Satanists, and he promises paradise to those who martyr themselves in the cause. Tragically enough, Muslims are killing Muslims in Iraq right now because of thinking like this. But the shoe can be put on the other foot. I lament that many people revile America today or disrespect us not only among our detractors, but especially among nations that have been our friends. This summer, my daughter will travel to Honduras and my son to Bosnia. I wonder about the reception they'll receive as Christians who happen to be American. To many people, America has lost our legitimacy as the sole superpower, and by now the litany of complaints is well known. We act in an isolationist, unilateral manner and fail to appreciate how others view us. We cook the intelligence books to justify policy decisions. We invoke double standards, insisting that a strong military with nuclear weapons is our just defense, but protesting when other countries say the same about their own security needs. The rule of law by which our country thrives and which is the envy of the world seems imperiled when we flout international conventions 
Detain people indefinitely without charges. Respond to detestable tortures in prison by protesting that wars are difficult. And deride as absurd the criticisms of important international bodies like Amnesty International and the International Red Cross. We've come to do foreign policy by belligerent militarism. And on top of all this, like so many countries throughout world history, we often claim that God is for us and against others. Zechariah's poetry reminds us that Yahweh's global interests transcend national self-interests. He warns against baptizing national ideology with a divine endorsement. God, he says, longs to break the battle bow and proclaim peace to all nations, to the ends of the earth. In 1805, Alex de Tocqueville landed on the shores of Newport, Rhode Island, and began his prescient travelogue that was eventually published as Democracy in America. To commemorate that bicentennial, in 2005, the Atlantic Monthly commissioned the French intellectual Bernard-Henri Lévy to travel extensively in America and report his findings. When Lévy visited Willow Creek Megachurch near Chicago, he recorded his impressions of how America portrayed God. Quote, A God without mystery. A good guy, God almost a human being, a good American." End quote. This 4th of July, as we celebrate our country and read Zachariah's political poetry written to his own country, I worry that Levy might be right and that we all too easily create God in our own self-serving national image. I hope I'm wrong. And I pray that Bernard-Henri Lévy is wrong. And now for further reflection. See two books that have been very helpful to me quite recently. First, Fareed Zakaria, The Post-American World, 2008. And then Daniel Berrigan, The Kings and Their Gods, 2008. Meditations upon the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. Secondly, how can we today proclaim peace to the nations, as Zechariah urges? And finally, recall that the Gospels quote this passage from Zechariah to describe Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey. For books this week, I review Mohammed Yunus, Creating a World Without Poverty, Social Business in the Future of Capitalism, New York Public Affairs, 2007, 261 pages. No one who cares about humanity, writes Mohammed Yunus, is satisfied with the world in which a few hundred million people enjoy access to all the resources of the planet, 
while billions more struggle merely to survive. But that's our world. Eunice cites one study that concluded that in the year 2000, the richest 1% owned 40% of the world's assets, and the richest 10% owned 85%. By contrast, the bottom half of the world's population owned barely 1% of the planet's assets. This disparity of resource distribution is wrong in practice, says Eunice. With globalized capitalism devouring diminishing resources, it's unsustainable. It threatens global security. But extreme poverty is wrong in principle, too, because it deprives billions of human beings of the most basic of all human rights, the right to live a decent life. For over 30 years, Mohammed Yunus has worked with remarkable creativity, perseverance, and vision to rectify these stubborn inequities. Most people know him as the founder of the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, for which he was awarded the Nobel Prize in 2006. Today, the Grameen Bank gives collateral-free microloans to 7 million of the poorest of the poor in Bangladesh, 97% of whom are women. Since its inception, they've made loans totaling $6 billion with a repayment rate of 99%. Eunice tells that story in his autobiographical book from 1999 called Banker to the Poor, Microlending in the Battle Against World Poverty. This newest book, continues the story of the many and latest permutations of the Grameen vision to eradicate poverty. This includes a stable of 25 Grameen replicants that specialize in everything from solar energy and internet kiosks to fish ponds, textiles, cell phone ladies, and livestock breeding. But all these are mere stepping stones in Eunice's fertile imagination. The focus of his newest book is what he calls social business. Normal businesses must focus on profit maximization and can even be sued by shareholders if they don't. But what Eunice calls a social business is what he calls a non-loss, non-dividend business whose primary objective is some social benefit. A social business competes in the marketplace with every other business. It must cover its costs, and it reinvests profits back in the company. This is a far more radical idea than mere corporate social responsibility, which in Eunice's mind tends to window dressing and has an inherent conflict of interest between the requirement to maximize profit and the intention to do good. Does this sound crazy? Well, read the book in its extended case study of how Grameen partnered with Group Dannon of France to create what Eunice calls the world's first consciously designed multinational social business, launched in 2006. This was followed by Grameen's eye care hospitals. He thus envisions in social businesses a giant leap forward 
for addressing extreme poverty in a scalable, replicable way. Social business, he writes, is the missing piece of the capitalist system. Social businesses do what government, NGOs, charity, and multilateral organizations like the World Bank can never do. Yunus is thus the quintessential dreamer. His wish list for the world of 2050 has 19 bullet points. But read this book and his previous one, and you'll also see that he's the consummate doer. Mohammed Yunus, Creating a World Without Poverty, from the year 2007. For, for film this week, I review King Corn from the year 2007. This documentary film is a sort of prequel to the film Fast Food Nation. And it does for movies what Michael Pollan has done in his two books, The Omnivore's Dilemma and In Defense of Food. Best friends Ian Cheney and Kurt Ellis relocate from the East Coast to Green, Iowa, population 1,015, in order to grow one acre of corn and then follow its fortunes after harvest. Planting one acre of 31,000 genetically modified kernels takes exactly 18 minutes. Fertilizers, sprays, water, and time yield about 200 bushels, or 10,000 pounds of corn. That's why there are literal mountains of corn in Iowa. But, interestingly enough, almost none of it is edible, nor was it ever intended to be edible, until it is artificially processed. About half of the crop goes to feed cattle, another third goes for ethanol and exports, and then a significant minority of it goes to make high fructose corn syrup and similar sweeteners that you'll find in virtually every label of processed food. In short, this is corn that is not really food. Cheney and Ellis netted a loss of $19.92 on their one acre of corn, but that's before massive government subsidies put them in the black. Not even the farmers in this film were happy about agribusiness as usual, but that's the story of corn in the year 2008. King Corn from the year 2007. And finally this week, we continue our summer series of sonnets by John Donne, who lived from 1572 to 1631. You'll be familiar with this week's sonnet, Holy Sonnet 10, Death Be Not Proud. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure. 
then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go. Rest of their bones and soul's delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. John Donne, Death Be Not Proud. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July the 6th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.